and welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, and of course, possibly uh, in outer space and the podcast, the the podcast in outer space. Uh, I am Saren Kester. I'm your host, and I'm actually the only person in the studio. I've given the rest of the team uh, the week off and the following week off and maybe even the following week off um, as much as I've given you the listener the week off. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, we are very aware, believe us, um, of just how uh, down the news is. It is not lost on us. Uh, and, and as much as we feel like the urge and need to and keep people informed is more important than just having the warm and fuzzies in your heart. But that's important, too. Um, we appreciate that the, you, sometimes we all need a break. So uh, we've tried to uh, spend the next few shows uh, recording some people that we find inspiring and uh, some people that we know uh, here locally uh, that we find inspiring, getting them to talk about big ideas for 2019. So th that is what we're going to be discussing. Uh, these are all pre-recorded uh, very recently, but still pre-recorded. So I've listened to them all. So I can actually tell you emphatically with knowledge and certainty uh, that there is uh, some really, really great content coming out for you over the next few weeks. And we hope that it uh, allows you to at least have a few weeks of optimism over the holidays. Um, so I'm not going to talk any more time because, uh, as I say, we have a bunch of pre-records and, uh, and they don't leave me a lot of chat time. So I'm going to get right to it. It's going to be mostly those clips today, but I'll be back now and again to, uh, to say hello and we're still going to do our music breaks and everything. So uh, I'm going to let Stefan here, who does uh, most of the interviews, um, uh, properly introduce Brian, but I will simply tell you that here is Stefan uh, interviewing uh, Brian Waller uh, and Brian Waller is from Ripple Farms. All right, and we are here with our holiday spectacular episodes, two in a row. Uh, if those of you who are unaware, we are doing two straight episodes of Big Ideas for 2019, uh, and we are here today, right now, with Brian Waller of Ripple Farms. Thank you for coming, Brian. My pleasure. Uh, also in studio, of course, is Dave Hostetter. Walking uh, around Stephen. that holiday tree. There you go. Uh, Can't I'm... say the C word anymore. It's a holiday. <laughs> let's... let's... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Christmas, for the record. Christmas. <laughs> I'm also here, but I'm going to be quiet. Yes. Uh, so yes, we have Saren Kaster, Dave Hostetter, and myself, Stephen Hostetter, coming at you uh, with a whole bunch of information about different different great ideas for 2019 uh, in and around the, in and around uh, this new year. So Brian, uh, first, I think it makes sense to start off with just what is Ripple Farms? What do you guys do? Yeah, so Ripple Farms is an urban agriculture social enterprise. Um, so what that means is basically we take part in all types of urban agriculture. Uh, we specialize in vertical farming and aquaponics farming. So for those of you who don't know, aquaponics is basically growing plants with fish poop. Um, it's pretty cool. It doesn't use any soil, uses no pesticides, um, has no agricultural runoff, uses very little water compared to traditional agriculture, um, and uses very little space. So by using these systems, um, it allows us to bring the farm to the city where we can actually use them as education hubs to teach people about where their food actually comes from. Um, so one of our farms, for example, is at Evergreen Brickworks. I've um, been to that one. Yeah. yeah I got a, a tour of it. Nice. And it pro probably wasn't me, though. Uh, I know it was. I think it was Brendan. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so that farm is quite literally in a shipping container um, with a greenhouse on top. Um, so that is our education hub. Um, and again, so by being able to bring it into the city, we use it as education, but it also allows us to grow food um, close to where people will actually consume it. Right, and and that one, if I'm cor correct me if I'm wrong, that one actually sells its food to the uh, to the restaurant that's at the Evergreen Brickworks. That's correct, uh, Cafe Belong. We also sell at the farmers market at Evergreen Brickworks, 
um, and a couple other restaurants. So Farmer, which is downtown, and Rosalinda, those are two of our, our bigger customers. Right. All right. Um, and so, yeah, and so we, obviously you guys sort of come at this from a from a food perspective. Yes. Uh, given that uh, there's a more general environmental experience. Um, what, so what is so what's your big idea? What do you guys want to do in 2019? Yeah, so the big idea is to have urban agriculture um, included purpose-built into urban development and urban planning. So what we see typically is that urban planning, urban infrastructure goes about its business and urban agriculture is an afterthought. So the big idea, the big vision is to have that, instead of as an afterthought, have it purpose-built and planned in from the beginning. Okay, and so and so, when you mean by that, what does that what does that look like? So, you, where I'm a developer, I'm gonna ha- you know, actually, well, I live on a street where a 14 story uh, development is going in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what does that sort of what does that look like? Yeah, so first I'll tell you what it, what an afterthought looks like, which is what we've been right. dealing with already, is looking at that, let's say that building that exists or this building that we're in right now, and saying, oh, maybe we can put a greenhouse there, or maybe we can take this room and retrofit it and renovate it. So purpose-built would say, before we build this building, let's think about how we can include food security into the development of the building. And we see this thought process already in urban, ag- and sorry, in urban planning. So for example, with green roofs, we have bylaws in Toronto that say you need a certain type of green roof. Um, and then there's reasoning behind that. So this is sort of on that same um, wavelength is to say from the beginning you need to include food security food security systems into your urban planning so this may be a a slight off topic uh and if you don't have the answer to this question feel free to to punt it but um i i I was thinking about this recently about toronto and food security uh a couple years ago i i I was at a talk and someone was saying you know how long would toronto survive without if if food if food was for some reason cut off of being driven into the city how long would we survive yeah and the answer at the time was three days that's correct and that's still that is the answer right um and that's from the city of toronto so that's a okay so that's a a relatively reputable source yeah i would say so yeah um and so what to to create a bare minimum of food what kind of what 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 would that take? You know, what what, what size of plant or, if you, or like how much? Say you're again, you're in a you're in a relatively normal sized apartment building. Uh, what does it look like to be resilient in that nature? Right. So, first of all, I I don't think that urban agriculture is on its own the only solution and will make a city food independent. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's about the resiliency is about saying that how can we mitigate those uh, those disasters, the catastrophes that say, okay, now it's going to take, in three days we're going to run out of food and it's going to take however long to get more food in. How do we extend that a little bit? Because we know we can recover from catastrophic natural disasters. It just takes a lot of time. Um, so it's not necessarily about being, becoming food independent. It's about being resilient. And then also a resiliency goes a little bit beyond that, what you were saying with the, the three days of food security. Um, it also, it, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So for example, right now, what we see is romaine lettuce um, having a recall. Um, and what it does is it, it, it has made um, other lettuce, iceberg lettuce, for example, triple in price. Mm. So that is not a, a resilient system, a resilient food system. Um, we have an upcoming potato shortage. And so potatoes are also going to be very expensive in the next few months. 
can you imagine how much potatoes and romaine lettuce are consumed every day in the city of Toronto? A lot. Right. Yes. I can and, imagine. Yeah. yeah and, and so once you, once you have these shortages and then increase in prices to your other food, that's not a resilient system. And it's not a resilient system to climate change, which is going to get worse. Mm. So on the topic of resiliency, something I, I just want to point out is that a lot of the time we talk about our environmental impact as if we just are focused on avoiding climate change, reducing our footprint and, and avoiding climate change or slowing it down. And unfortunately, climate change has already happened, is going to continue to happen. So it's there's no stopping climate change. Slowing it down is worth it. And that's something that we also, we do, our, our type of farming actually um, addresses those issues. But part of the goal and something that we need to start to think about is our resiliency, knowing that climate change has happened. It's, well, yeah, we're already we're already one degree above 1990 levels, right? Or, or 1900 levels. It, it's it's already happening. Yeah. So so why are we only focused on preventing it? So our, that's why our, our solutions when it comes to resiliency are, are saying, what are we going to do about it? It's mm. it's happened. It's going to continue to happen. How what are we going to do? Right. And, and so to so to jump off that resiliency question or to dive a little bit deeper and for half a second. What what does uh, what does the, the the climate changing have? In, what's the impact on our food systems? Like what is the what are like what a maybe you know what's ha why are why are we experiencing a, a potato shortage mm -hmm. uh, or or how do we expect climate change to impact uh, our ability to access food that sort of makes this so important? So there's a f quite a few ways that it does. Um, I guess the two major topics I would say are your natural disaster catastrophes so for example um, a drought in California um, which is not just a one-off thing like that happened that's an extended drought right yes. um, and then your catastrophic disasters like floods which are very common in, in Toronto specifically that is our major obstacle um, or earthquakes tsunamis all, all of that um, and then the other topic is climate change in terms of having an an unpredictable climate. Mm. So potato shortage or romaine lettuce. So some of those are, are the result of, let's say, a colder than normal month when it shouldn't be that way. And, and historically, it isn't that way. And if that continues to happen, then we're going to continue to have those shortages. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that we harp on often on the show, or at least I, I do consistently, is just the, the way our current food system works is to maximize yield. But it but that maximization yield also makes it actually much less resilient to different changes in weather. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And so like that's what's interesting. Why, why I find this uh, such a important conversation is because I'm mostly actually concerned about these types of these types of like crop failures. You know, mm -hmm. like the, the, to me, that is like one of the first real major ways we're going to experience climate change will affect sort of globally yeah. uh, is is that is that kind of crop or is a crop fail a major crop failure or or something else like that you know given the fact that we are we are living in this world in which it is so we're so interdependent for food uh, that that how you manage to deal with you know what happens if you know if, if all our fruit comes from California and suddenly they don't have enough Calif Californian fruit to get even get outside of California mm -hmm. we are definitely getting cut off cut off from that fruit <laughs> tree yeah, right like yeah. we're not getting that fruit <laughs> um, and so and so bringing that sort of more into the city does seem to be yeah. does seem the way to do it and uh, and on that topic unless we're not getting that fruit unless we are are wealthy enough and economically superior right. to do that. So it's a hit to the economy. And to rely on that, again, is, is not resilient. It's, it, 
it's it's not something that you can really rely on moving forwards indefinitely. Yeah. So so let's get back to this this big idea. You know, yeah. let's, let's let's go back to what's your dream building? Like what does it look like? Yeah, so my dream building uh, I, I would say th- this big idea in terms of policy is for example, we already have green roofs. If you've ever been on a green roof or seen what a green roof is, it actually is people do the bare minimum obviously because it's the cheapest thing for them. So it'll say that your green roof needs to be certain thickness, for example, of a certain substrate that will absorb water. So let's up that bare minimum and encourage people to make edible green roofs, mm. for example. Um, but my dream building isn't isn't just that, because that, again, that's an afterthought. That's adapting an existing building to say, let's, let's find ways to make these buildings more productive. Mm. What I envision is, for example, in an industrial area where you have these, like a picture supermarket or a warehouse, where it's not a a 14-story building, the roofs of those buildings, which are flat, could be made to be stronger um, so that you can put, let's say, a greenhouse on top of that. And and we see a couple of of companies doing this already. Um, There's one out of Montreal. There's a couple in New York and Chicago that do the, the rooftop farm. But the problem is, well, one of the problems is, again, like if you're looking for a building which you can do that, what building is going to already have the capacity to have a farm on its roof? Like the, the roof isn't strong enough necessarily. Right. Yeah, yeah and, that's, and that's a consistent problem everywhere. Right? That, that's yes. the same reason with green roofs to, to retrofit is so expensive because you have to reinforce the roof to accept all the soil. Right. So, so then basically what I'm saying is like let's start from the beginning. Mm. When you're building something – say that the the mandatory minimum needs to be a certain um, capacity. And we already see it. Again, this isn't a novel idea to to do that. We already say um, our buildings need to be earthquake resistant. You need to have rebar um, reinforcing your concrete. Like this is a normal thing that we already do. You need to use um, fireproof materials or certain fire rating materials for your building. This isn't an unusual thing to do to say, Building code needs to be of a certain quality so that we can achieve certain uh, desired outcomes. Mm-hmm. And one of the desired outcomes that I think we need to include is food security. And so, and so, to, and so to jump off that, or to jump into maybe more um, a, a wider spread of adoption, what this could look like, you know, is it is it possible even to to say have a floor of an apartment building mm-hmm. be dedicated to this? Is that is it like I don't know the logistics of how of the sort of water and and energy requirements. And so I'm curious to know if like could you build you know a an apartment building that's like 20 stories and the third floor is a is a, is an aquaponic farm or hydroponic? Farm? Absolutely. And so that was sort of like my other major category of what my dream building mm. is so first I have the the industrial warehouse kind of building and then an apartment building so if you look at apartment buildings now condo buildings they already have amenities built in and you as a resident or condo owner you pay your monthly condo fee you get a pool you get whatever it is so what we envision and one of our big ideas for 2019 is a condominium supported agriculture so a CSA where you have, when, when you buy a condo, you're also buying into food security. Mm. So if you have a floor dedicated to that, condominium fees can go towards supporting that. Um, and then you can grow food that will feed the people in the building. We're, we're, there's a couple of condos or developments that are including these principles now, um, but not all of them. And in the future, where 
people of our generation hopefully will be able to buy yeah. property maybe <laughs> maybe we can have One some property maybe, maybe, a, <laughs> maybe a shoebox <laughs> and people like us i think already um value that value food security and eventually it's it's not going to be a question whether you value it or you, you'll have to value it because it's going to be an issue. Well, yeah, because you're going to need the food. Yeah, yeah. you're going to need food and there's going to be more droughts and there's going to be more cold spells and there's going to be more natural disasters and your price of lettuce where this iceberg lettuce shoots up in price is going to happen more often. Yeah, I remember talking to someone during, I think it was like a six or seven months ago when cauliflower got really expensive. Yes. Your time. Yeah, it got crazy expensive. Like yeah. it was like a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I remember I remember that conversation at, at, with a friend of mine who was sort of like, had always got their, that had always got their cauliflower from like their local farm. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, now it actually costs the same amount. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. like it's, it's like, it was, it was this one moment of like actual price versus realized price, you know, mm-hmm. finally leveling out. Yeah. Even though I was like, oh yeah, it's seven dollars for for this um and so i guess the as we we got about another five-ish minutes left may i um, ask um, yeah please do i'm wondering if you know anything about the where the technology is in terms of the relative energy intensity i have a friend who is running an aquaponics business out of guelph mm-hmm. uh shout out to evan bell and i don't know anything <laughs> about the particular um uh the uh technical details of it but he he was expressing concern that the that using aquaponics to grow plants for food he was expressing concern about where the technology is in terms of the relative energy intensity. Yeah, so like the the energy cost is the one biggest downside to it, mm. no question. That that is the one downside. Um, it's getting better because basically our LED lighting technology is improving. Mm. Um, so that's where a lot of your energy goes to is your lights. Mm. Um, so and the lights are important when you're doing a vertical farm. So it allows you to maximize your density um, by actually having several layers rather than just one plane. Um, so it's improving and it actually just provides, um, some limitations on what we can grow. So that's sort of the trade-off is if the energy requirements weren't, um, so huge, then we could in theory grow whatever we wanted. Um, so because the energy requirements are, are quite large, what we have to do is grow high value crops. So we grow leafy greens because leafy greens have a low, a short shelf life. Um, so, which means that when they're actually grown close to the consumer, they're more valuable to be able to provide fresh greens. That's something that is valuable to be able to provide a fresh potato. Less valuable. Yeah, less valuable. You don't need to be growing your potatoes on the, the third floor of a condo building. Right. Right, because you because you, because it's three months because they, their shelf life is longer, and so it's yeah, it doesn't need to be fresh. But let's say lettuce or basil, that you want that to be fresh, and people value that. Okay, mm-hmm. and 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 so the yeah, so actually that does does that does dovetail well into the, the one question I'd have, which was sort of what what types of food you would sort of see this replacing, and what types of food you sort of see you, you sort of would be left out of this uh, of this equation. Yeah, so. For sure, leafy greens, like, and that's what traditionally has been grown because of what I just said. Um, the next steps, like fruits, are quite common. So um, tomatoes and peppers and strawberries, those types of fruits are, are very common, um, partially because we eat a lot of them um, and because the economics of them work out. The things that are most challenging and quite unlikely to happen are your root vegetables and your cereals, like your grains, Mm. Um, simply because the time that it takes to require that, the space required, and again, the the value of growing it 
close to consumption is lower for those, right? You can store your your rice for such a long time and potatoes for a very long time. So I would say to think about it as what is more valuable to have fresh that is and also what grows faster. So again, lettuce grows very fast, so you can have a high turnover. It makes it more economic to grow in the city. So that's sort of how to think about it as yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity to sort of say where people can find out more about Ripple Farms. Yeah. Uh, and then have a wonderful holiday. Uh, check out ripplefarms.ca. Check out our website. Um, come visit me at Evergreen Brickworks. Um, and yeah, hope to run into everybody somewhere, somehow in the future and uh, show you more about vertical farming. All right. Thank you so much, Brian. This is Brian Waller from Ripple Farms. Uh, and we'll go to our music break. All right, and as Stefan was saying, we're going to go now to our music break. You're listening to The Green Majority during our uh, What to Look Forward to Big Ideas for 2019 uh, sort of holiday series here. We're going to listen to Now I Know by July Talk, and then we will be right back. You're listening to CIT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful or very appreciated community radio sponsors, or thank you for downloading the podcast. Oh, man, I let that go a little longer than I was planning on because I like that song so much. Uh, thanks, uh, shout out to Megan, of course, our tech, who is not here today, but uh, is still going to be doing the audio and chose the wonderful music. So if you're thinking, wow, Sarah, new music taste improved. Uh, no, Megan's is the same. So we're going to go to our second interview now. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Green Majority, and we're doing our Big Ideas for 2019 uh, series. Uh, we're going to move on now to the next Interview. This interview is actually in two parts. It's a tiny bit longer, uh, and so we broke it in half, so it's sort of two shorter bits. And then there may or may not be a couple of minutes at the end of the show. We'll see how it's going. It doesn't look like there will be a ton of time, but if so, I don't know. I'll make something up. Uh, but for now, we're going to get going. So this is uh, uh, Stefan once again interviewing uh, Emily Charles, who, uh, sorry, uh, Emily Charles Donaldson, uh, who is the, I believe her title is the social media coordinator, but uh, basically the head cheerleader for the Toronto Tool Library, which is another exceptional organization, and this is another exceptional interview in Enjoy. And welcome to the Green Majority here on CAT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful radio syndicates or perhaps on our podcast, which can be listened to on greenmajority.ca, uh, as well as all the notes about all the people we've been speaking to during this uh, very exciting holiday experience of Big Ideas for 2019. Uh, and so uh, we, I'm in studio as consistently true with uh, Dave Hostetter, Saren Kaster, myself, Stephen Hostetter, and uh, now uh, in studio with the Toronto Tool Library or many of the other named uh, names of Emily, Charles, Donaldson, um, and you – uh, you just you're fresh off uh, today. Have, for those of you who have not made it clear, we're doing some of these pre-recorded before the holidays, and so today's actually the 16th of December. Um, and you just had your wildly successful holiday uh, holiday swapathon. Um, and but uh, to 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 sort of frame out what is going on, uh, what is the Toronto Tool Library? Yeah. Okay. So the Toronto Tool Library is basically a community hub for sharing tools. So. We have over 5,000 tools and then also some other items like camping gear, board games, toys, um, party supplies, that kind of thing. Anything that, you know, maybe somebody needs the use of um, for something in particular, but maybe doesn't have to be owning and storing for a long period of time because they're just not using that resource. Um, so we keep it all in this community hub and people pay a membership fee and they can come in and borrow what they need and then bring it back for other people to use. 
Great. Um, and, and so there's, I believe there's three of these in the city? There's three locations. Um, so one is just a tool library that's in Parkdale. St. Clair West has the sharing depot and the tool library. So the sharing depot is technically the one with the board games and the camping gear and all that stuff. But it's all under one membership mm-hmm. structure. And then uh, CSI Spadina hosts the makerspace and tool library and sharing depot. So the makerspace is where we run a lot of workshops, a lot of upcycling projects, um, reuse things, pulling in other organizations to run their workshops. It's it's really like a dynamic community space for making as well as the borrowing aspect. Amazing. Uh, yeah, you guys have been uh, frequently my go-to example of, of things that I think are very cool. Uh, and so I think our listeners will be relatively aware uh, of those pieces. Um, but thank you for sort of getting some context. Uh, but to move forward uh, as quickly as possible onto your big idea for 2019, what do you want to see? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So um, I think like coming from where I'm coming from, um, all the work that we've done with the tool library and Sharing Depot over the years, um, our big thing is really thinking about resource use and resource consumption. So right now on the planet, the way that the economic model has been structured, um, we're encouraged to go out and buy everything as individuals and own those things as individuals in our individual houses. as well as a lot of the you know single-use disposable, whether it's fast fashion or it's single-use plastics or you know whatever whatever materials we're producing, there's not been a lot of thought into thinking about the long-term strategy for these materials when we're done with them, like the end-of-life uh, cycle kind of thing. Um, so for me, I I think it's really important that cities start to shift. Um, because so many of them are going through waste re-strategizing their waste streams because they've become so cumbersome because of the fact that, you know, we haven't had, we haven't thought about what we're going to be doing with all these materials that are not recyclable or, you know, they're recyclable in one place and not the other. And then China has slammed the door on, uh, you know, exporting a lot of that waste away. Yeah, yeah. Just jump. That's right now, uh, as someone who's trying to figure out how, the recycling industry is, is is having a huge crisis right now because of that. Like China has really messed up a lot of like Torontonians. I don't think I fully understand how much of the stuff right now is ending up in the landfill because no one can find anywhere to buy this this extra cycle. Yeah, I believe I read somewhere that the number was like up to eighty between eighty and ninety five percent is not actually being recycled right now. Like it's a really high that number. Is brutal. De- depending on where, like which city and which. Uh, province or whatever, wherever you are, and pe- they don't—they don't want people to stop recycling because that behavior was really hard to get going in the first place. So it's like everybody's still putting all the stuff in the bins, but a lot of it is just sitting in warehouses, or it's being dumped in landfill, or it's being incinerated, which is also a problem because all the chemical fumes mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So, um, with that in mind, um, and like this idea of like you know consuming fast fashion stuff and things from dollar stores, cheaply made items, whatever, I think it would be great if cities could come up with some kind of really integrated um, system where we had reuse centers, Mm. like really um, effective um, reuse centers that kind of incorporated all the things that we are loosely doing through the tool library right now, but on a small scale. So to maximize that and make it bigger so that it's more easy for people to access and more people um, can easily understand uh, that process. Because right now I I really think, um, you know, people are just using the system that's in place. It's nobody's fault. Like we've we've just right. kind of gone off down this course. Um, and to to get ourselves back on track, we really just need um, the infrastructure for 
this other way of thinking about resources. So, mm -hmm. you know, sharing hubs should be in every community. They should be in every condo. You know, nobody should be having to buy vacuum cleaners and tools and like whatever board games, like whatever items, you know, you want the use of, you want the experience, you want to throw a party, you want to have a disco ball, but like, do you need to own that disco ball? Or could you just like go to the basement of your condo where you have a shared library of things and borrow it and then put it back for the next person? Like that would make much more sense. And then uh, um, as in addition to borrowing, um, a repair, like right. integrate. So you, you could have like in Sweden, there's a mall where it's like a repair mall. So people bring all of their wow. kind of broken things and it's like just the same as a mall that you would see today, but it's all um, repaired or used things. So there's a clothing shop and there's a furniture shop and there's a bike shop, uh, electronics shop, but all of those items have been taken in from the community um, and if they need to be repaired, they're repaired on the spot and then they're put into these shops and people come in and buy them secondhand. So I think that would be amazing to see Toronto move in that direction where we have these centers where, you know, people are bringing in all this stuff that can be repaired and then buying it used rather than new. Um, and also like creatively reusing materials. So we have an organization called Boomerang Bags that comes into our space and uses the tool library for their workshops. And basically they just take all these textiles that were destined for landfill, not usable anymore, um, and they make them into reusable bags. Wow. So, you know, rather than going out and buying this tote bag that's made out of cotton where the cotton had to be grown and that's like really resource intensive and then the bag has to be made and has to be shipped, like forget all of that. Just take all the textiles that we're not using. Like I think it's something like 85% of our textiles right now are going to landfill. And that's like serious because the methane gas off of textile waste is such a potent greenhouse gas. Um, so, you know, having that kind of thing also integrated into these repair centers where people could just be in this, you know, nice big space um, where they could be creatively repurposing all kinds of materials into things that we need and then distributing those across the city. Like imagine if we took all that textile waste, made all these bags and distributed those to the grocery stores on a regular basis. Right. And then nobody has to worry about you know, using the plastic bags, you don't always have to necessarily be thinking about bringing your own because the idea of a boomerang bag is it's supposed to circulate. So you use uh, it, you bring it back, you because, use it, you bring it back. Because that's, so interesting, cause, cause that's, a, that's an interesting addition because I was, because one of the things you always hear about, um, about, about those, about, you know, new tote bags is that you have to use them so many times to make sense. But this idea that you, you just create a, create a communal existence of bags uh, that you could just like be dropping off and taking out, dropping off and taking back, taking out totally sort of undercuts that sort of need. It, it really does create a such much more sustainable ecosystem of, of, of bags. Yeah, that's right. And I think it also takes the stress off of people. Like I carry a zero waste kit with me, which includes, you know, a coffee cup, a water container, uh, cloth veggie bags, tote bag, container, utensils, the, the whole thing so that I can avoid using single use garbage when I'm out. Mm. Um, but some people find that idea stressful, like the idea of having to always be carrying something, to always be thinking about it, to always be remembering. Um, so I think that kind of model where we're putting things in place that are meant to circulate and be reused and, and it's like a system that's already set up that's easy for people to access and use and people don't have to think about it anymore like just the way you don't think about ordering uh you know 
whatever plastic thing that your drink comes in. Nobody's thinking about that. So it would be the same thing. Right. Like you wouldn't have to think about it. It would just be natural. Yeah. I, well, I remember I was at a, I was at, I was in years ago, Dave and I were in Germany and we happened across a street festival and that street festival had had uh, reusable containers. Every, you you had to get a thing from the thi- from from one place. You'd bring it to wherever you're getting food, and it was. But it was again that sort of shared sort of model of, and and, and it allowed you. Then there was no trash cans, right? Because you finished up and you brought it back to the thing. You got your like two dollars back and you carried it on. And it was such a and it was interesting to watch something that was so normal, right? It was interesting to see experience something that like I, anyone who's been to the Taste of the Danforth understands how much waste these types of things can create. Waste of the Danforth. Ah, nice. Um, and and the and this was this flipped on its head so clearly um and so to, to sort of dive into this um this i this i sort of idea a little bit more uh, what's interesting of course is that like recycling has sort of always been like while simultaneously sort of lip service of like it's the least important one you should be reducing and reusing but really is where a ton of the attention came to especially in like the 90s the attention on recycling was 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 huge um and it was interesting of course is that it didn't come with the sort of way the salute any other part of this, these solutions um and so in this in this vision for 2019 so how do you see this manifesting do you see this being sort of plugged into our already existing library infrastructure uh do you see this being in sort of more more condominiums uh where like the best version of this what does it look like yeah okay so just to i'm gonna get to that question but i just want to touch on the recycling thing because i think that's a really interesting point and i'm not the best person to speak to this but i know a little bit about it um so 95 percent of the waste um that goes into a product actually occurs before it's even recycled so Mm. even if you recycle something the environmental damage has already occurred in the you know the resource extraction and the creation of the thing and shipping it and like all that stuff the water that's wasted and um so recycling really is not a solution to waste at all and the reason uh that you know some intellectuals theorize that the reason that recycling was the one that was um so much put forward is because it allows the current monetary system to remain intact because waste is actually just a business. So the reason that we recycle is because there are people who are making tons of money off of this recycling Um, and not like I'm not necessarily saying that people shouldn't be making money off of their efforts. But um, I think in terms of like where we're going with this reuse model and this sharing model and this repairing model, um, it it does actually call on us to redefine what the economy is and what work is, um, and you know the inequalities that exist in resource distribution. There's a statistic somewhere that says um, something like a, a six-month-old baby in the West has already used as many resources as like an adult, like going through their entire lifespan in a developing nation. Um, And that's a really scary thing. So right now we're working with a monetary system that is really, really bad at (laughs) distributing the Earth's resources to all the people who are entitled to them because we're all working together to create this thing that is human existence. Um, You know, like we live this story together and right now the story is really damaged and broken. So I see kind of this reuse center approach as also being a part of that 
conversation. Like, how do we make sure that everybody has their needs met? And we kind of get rid of this weird hierarchical structure where somebody is allowed to make tons of money and then buy whatever they want. And that makes everybody else feel really insecure, which fuels consumerism, because then people see, you know, so-and-so with X thing. And then they go to the cheap fast fashion stores and buy the knockoffs. And then that's out of style. And it like it fuels this whole weird uh, throwaway culture that we have. So... Yeah, I think it's like it's a bigger picture thing than just um, the material reuse itself. But in terms of implementing it, that's a trickier question. Like that's something that we struggle with um, as an organization with the tool library, um, getting funding for what we're doing and like how do we set this up? How do we make it easy for people to use? I think um, it should be integrated at a city level. Like it, mm. we, we maybe need to, to look at that and that's going to be um, – something that the city is going to have to consider but like similar to the the public library structure where it's paid for through um you know the the pool of money that we all put together through taxes and we we set up these sharing hubs all over the city in all the communities and all the condos maybe the condos are done separately because it's through a board i'm not sure so maybe the board would have to to be involved in that but maybe there could be some kind of mandate for you know like you have to do this it has to be a thing um and then also little things like sweden right now has introduced a tax system for repairs so if you get something repaired it's like you've donated to a charity so you get a tax receipt oh, wow. and that's fueling the repair economy over there it's creating jobs in the repair sector mm. um and also removing taxes on uh reusables so i think I think it's Quebec that's doing something, or Montreal, one of them, is doing something like that, where they're removing taxes from the environmentally friendly products. So they're incentivizing people right. to buy those things. You know, and and in these types of like these types of, of studies, what I find so interesting about about what the True Library does, and why I've sort of consistently used uh, used your organization as an example, is it does feel like where the rubber hits the road, right? Like like this kind of question of actually how to implement it is 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 not one you get to ask for a lot of these other types of questions. You know, a lot of the ideas of like the totally reframing what is it like like re- changing our entire energy grid, while very important, doesn't have like a doesn't have like a daily impact on me, right? Uh, whereas, whereas I feel like Tool Library, you know, you are you are interfacing with people today, tomorrow, you know, next week who are do who are implementing this different society, um, and and so this so like that's I find that sort of the fact that you're like okay, how do we actually make say reduction in 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 or a reduction or reuse, uh, put it forward in a way that fundamentally changes sort of how people experience you know society like the idea of going to repair mall is so is is is, is interesting actually from the standpoint of like is so outside of the uh, a reality for even someone like myself who who relatively underthinks as relative connected to these types of things in the same way that people who say who came to your swap event that you just had today were blown away by that right like there's these there's these levels i feel like and each time you get somewhere else you're like oh it it, it increases what is possible i guess All right, so we're going to pause it there. That is the end of part one of our interview with Emily Charles Donaldson, the uh, social media coordinator, I believe. Again, I'm sorry, I forget. I think that's her title. Uh, But for the Toronto Tool Library, she is an awesome individual who uh, represents the Toronto Tool Library both online and in person frequently. Uh, If you're interested in maybe meeting her, you can go to events. She's uh, almost always at all of their events. Uh, They're very serious about the community stuff. As I say, we broke this interview into two parts. We've got about 10 minutes left, and we've only got about 15 minutes to the show. So we're going to take a short 
short music break, come back, wrap up the show. Hope you're enjoying it. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And here is some more July talk with Strange Habit to get you through. All right, why don't we cut it there just for today? I'm sorry, I know that's a great song too, but we want to make sure we get all the time for our great guests today. So uh, if you're just tuning in now, you're listening to The Green Majority. We're here at CIUT 89.5 FM or our wonderful and very, very appreciated community radio partners uh, all over the earth, uh, potentially in outer space. And of course, our podcast listeners, thank you very much for downloading the show. You can look at the show notes even for today. on thegreenmajority.ca, which is a great place to find out more about the show. There's all sorts of things that uh, you don't know that we don't have time to talk about here. You can learn at greenmajority.ca. But without any more ado, this is the second half of our interview with Emily Charles Donaldson from the Toronto Tool Library. ...us from getting to this this, this vision of of these... what are you experiencing right now as your biggest difficulties? What is sort of preventing us from getting to this, to this, this vision of, of these of these sort of you know distributed uh, repair and and uh, reuse experiences? Such a big question. Oh yes, I'm sure. Yes, <laughs> I basically asked like, how do I change the economy? Yeah. If you could just tell me how to change the economy, that would be great. Yeah. Snap your fingers. <laughs> um, well, I think. Uh, as I said, kind of in the beginning, we've we've been on this trajectory. Um, the gears have been turning in a specific way for a long time. We have never been encouraged to think about our resource consumption. It's always just buy this thing, get this thing. You need this thing in your life to make your life better. And you, <laughs> you suck if you thing. don't. <laughs> yeah, like you must have this thing. Um, and then not considering how the pro- the products are made for you know their end of life cycle. So it, it's it's a process of you know, grinding those gears down to a halt and moving them the other way so that we can start moving in a different direction. And I think it is going to start small at, at these kind of community level projects where, you know, we're setting up tool libraries and we're, you know, allowing people to come into our space and swap and make stuff and teaching them the skills to make stuff. Because right. that's another big thing is that, you know, the trades have really fallen off and uh, that needs to change as well. People need to know how to make their own stuff. Um, and I think, those things are going to start getting people thinking. Mm. Like in the last few years, I, I run the social media, so I've, I've been watching the zero waste movement grow. And in the last two years, it's grown substantially. Like the hashtags that you know the zero waste community uses, they're not just used sometimes, they're used all the time. Like interesting. People are using them every day and there's more and more people that are growing more and more interested in it. Um, and I think the thing that people love about it is it's a positive story. Right. It's not like... Okay, guys, it's the end of the world. We're all going to die. You know, the, we're just extracting too many resources. The earth is dying, blah. It's more like, okay, oh my God, like, here's the solutions. Like, this is such an awesome, powerful thing. Like, we can actually implement this stuff and push for it. And the more we do it, the more people that get on the bandwagon, the more people understand it and love it, um, the, the easier it's going to be to push for that higher system level change that we need to implement it, you know, across all the cities and across all the countries and across the entire planet. Um, and I think part of that is a community story. Hmm. It's uh, like capitalism, I think, has done a fantastic job of separating people from each other. I always say that we buy ourselves away from each other Hmm. in capitalism because it's like we can just buy solutions to our problems. But as as nice as that sounds on paper, what it's done is it's really divided people. People don't have a sense of community anymore. It's like we're all just walking around in these little bubbles and, you know, 
you, I watch people taking selfies with their stuff and like showing it off. And that is um, a fabricated form of social connectedness. And I think these spaces like the tool library and coming in and swapping and all, it, it really creates a powerful sense of community. Like some of the crowd funds we've run, that's the main thing that people put forward when they're sharing our stuff and talking about us. It's like this great community space is, you know, needing our support, needing our help. And this is our community space. It's not just us doing it. It's like, it's the whole community that thinks of this as theirs. Um, and I think that's a powerful part of the story is when people realize that, we can be interconnected and help each other and support each other and use our things to build better relationships with each other rather than using our things to separate from what we really need, which is community. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember I've often told this this story uh, about uh, about I, I was I as in my work I end up going to a lot of sort of launch parties and, and stuff like that. Uh, and more often than not, you you do the, you do the experience and then it hits the time to go and everyone's you know everyone's moved on because there was a networking event. They sort of did their networking now they're gone. And then I went to the two libraries uh, celebration of I think hitting your I think it was the most recent one where you you raised I think it was forty thousand dollars. And and people just didn't leave. Like it was this community and they just kept. It was like at, it was like three hours after the event was over and people were still hanging out. It was so clear that this was because people just enjoyed each other's company. People were there. The, the glue was this fact, this, this community. Um, and, and I think there's – I've done a whole bunch of – there's been a whole bunch of talk uh, recently uh, about, uh, about community spaces that are, that are fading – and the need for new community spaces, uh, you know, even the Harvard Divinity School has this thing called, called, called has this book or this sort of report called How We Gather, and it's about this concept um, of of how of how people gather and and, and and that people are leaving the church and trying to find community other places, and 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 to me something like this says so clearly proven to be this is a new community space, right? This idea, this maker community, this sort of tool library uh, to come back together and the power of that community really does feel. Uh, potent um, yeah yeah totally um, you really have to experience it to know what it is like uh, it's something that I I'm working with uh, trying to figure out how to translate that into the storytelling so that people mm. can kind of get it through the storytelling without having to actually come to the space like that should be the draw they should like feel it before they come in but it's a it's a really challenging thing to capture because coming into the space and experiencing it is really where it's at like I I tell this story all the time of um, bringing my daughter to the sharing depot and borrowing toys on a weekly basis and the experience that I had, you know, seeing other families return toys while we were there that my daughter had, you know, previously borrowed and had previously used. Like, I, I can't tell people how special that feeling is. Like, it made my heart feel big. It's like... I don't know what it is, but there's something really magical about that. It's like, wow, we're all doing this together and like they're not better than me and they don't have any more access than me. We have equal access and look at us doing this thing. And it's just so incredible like to feel it and to see it and and yeah just be it and totally people are are in love with the community it's it's amazing yeah like what a, well, what a way to build a community like I, I played with this toy you played with this toy right like this like as from yeah. a, even from a kid perspective that concept of just like it's not my thing it's our thing is so such a fundamentally you know we, we spend it's almost ironic that we spend our, all our time to convince kids to share while yeah. also just giving them stuff that's only their stuff right we just don't it's like yeah you want to teach them sharing make them actually share the thing exactly the <laughs> Yeah, put it into the infrastructure of their development as kids. Um, and that's one of the things that Jeremy Rifkin talks about um, 
in one of the most recent interviews he gave about that, like how toy libraries are actually one of the most important pieces for changing the world. Because when you get kids sharing, suddenly you remove that weird power dynamic that happens when kids are like, this is my thing. And then they grow up with that mentality of like, mine, mine, mine. And that's how we, you know, are accepting this weird structure that we're accepting. But then you get them sharing at such a young age and suddenly that's all gone and it's like, this is us and we and together and I shouldn't have any more than you have. And it's just this very natural evolution. Yeah, uh, we are uh, we are running out of time. Uh, so I want to just give you a chance to anyone who wants to find out more about it. Uh, where can they find out more about all the things? Yeah, so you can go to torontotoollibrary.com um, and you can also find us on social media. On Instagram, it's Toronto Tool Library. On Facebook, it's Toronto Tool Library. And on Twitter, it's TO Tool Library. Um, and there's a newsletter you can sign up for on the website. Uh, you can come out to our space uh, at 192 Spadina for the Makerspace. Every Wednesday, we hold a free community night from 7 to 10 p.m. And that's really just an opportunity for anyone to come in and use the space for free, any of the tools. Even if you know nothing about tools, we have all these great makers and volunteers in the space that are there just helping people make projects. And it's it's just a really fun night because, again, you get to experience that community vibe. And so I always recommend that to people if they can come out physically to the space. That's great. Amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Emily, from the Toronto Tool Library. Uh, and uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. This has been The Green Majority on CUT. You know, I'm going to wish them a Happy New Year's. Uh, only a Happy New Year's. There you go. And you can, you can borrow a disco ball from the Sharing Depot if mm. you want to celebrate. There you go. Well, <laughs> we, have, uh, we have literally at the Center of Social Media, we have borrowed your chocolate fountain twice for two different parties. Excellent. And every time we get to use it, it's like, we have a chocolate fountain now. This is amazing. Yeah, totally. There you go. All right, thanks so much. And then tomorrow when you don't want a chocolate fountain. Yeah, you can give it back. Exactly. You don't, you don't to need to keep it, it around. It's perfect. All right. That was the end of our conversation uh, with Emily uh, Charles Donaldson uh, from the Toronto Tool Library. Uh, we're going to have links to uh, both Ripple Farms and the Toronto Tool Library uh, on the webpage. We obviously appreciate that, that, that we have many, many listeners, uh, potentially overall more listeners outside of Toronto, uh, both Ripple Farms and the Tool Library, uh, I can assure you, would be happy to uh, connect you to uh, resources. They would, uh, I'm sure, uh, be more than happy. We've asked them before. Um, uh, they have uh, materials and whatnot. Even if you were uh, in another city and you wanted to, say, start a uh, Vancouver Tool Library, they may have even already uh, uh, done something like that. I don't know. But uh, there's definitely value here uh, if you're interested in those topics. Check out the website at greenmajority.ca. You'll be able to reach out to those folks. Uh, I'm, they're very friendly. I'm sure they would be happy to answer your, more of your questions if you had that. Or you can always email us as well at greenmajority.ca is the best reason, uh, best way to reach us. Uh, as I said, we're going to be doing our sort of lighter content for the next few weeks uh, in uh, for the next few shows. Uh, so we will be here next week with a, a li uh, not a live show, but a new show uh, throughout the holidays, but with just some more laid back content so we hope you appreciate it we're going to appreciate the the time off and then uh, mark my words there will be lots of things to talk about when we come back to news uh oh boy <laughs> i can assure you with that we're going to let you go have a good green week everyone thank you so much and we'll talk to you again uh real soon